and the topic today is going to be um, leadership and submission in marriage. Um, but I was going to start with um, some caveats and some disclaimers. Um, the first is that um, I'm not, uh, nor do I claim to be, um, a marriage expert or a marriage counselor. Um, but really what my credentials are is that I've been happily married for 17 years. Um, and it's almost uh, 20 years since like Sean and I's, uh, Sean and mine uh, first date um, actually. And kind of looking back, you know, we, each of us kind of realized that actually God had been leading us, kind of preparing us and leading us to uh, St. Louis where we would eventually meet. Um, and I think each one of us consider the other like one of you know God's greatest gifts uh, you know to our to us um, so that's kind of the first kind of caveat or disclaimer um, the second is that you know today's topic and m many of my points are going to be really um, about um, you know kind of what does the scripture say about um, leadership and submission in the context of marriage um, and I know most of you here um, are, are not married um, and are single um, but and so these are, they may not be directly applicable, you know, to you, but you should view these more as, a, as principles um, to, to work towards, you know, to kind of prepare yourselves, you know, for eventually, you know, if God wills, you know, an engagement and ultimately kind of marriage. Um, and, you, and kind of like what, I'm, like last year when there, we were going through kind of the relationship series, you should not view this as a checklist, you know, kind of just kind of checking things off and say, yes, yeah, now I'm going to be a biblical husband or I'm going to be a biblical wife. Just think of these as the principles that give you kind of a, a solid kind of foundation. Um, and so let, let's open our time in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word um, as found in your son, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection for us. We also thank you for your word that is um, shown in scripture, that guides us, that gives us information and in, 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 in truth, your truth, and your, your kind of, your plan for humanity, for us as individual believers, but also for for married couples, you know, in the context of marriage. We ask that your Holy Spirit be with us tonight as we consider this topic and we look into your word. Uh, be with us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the biblical model of marriage and kind of the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives is very often misunderstood or misapplied or even misinterpreted. Um, you know, on one hand, you have the secular world and you have kind of non-believers that look at what the Bible teaches, you know, about the relationship between husbands and wives. And what they see is they see like almost male chauvinism. They say, okay, you know, the Bible teaches, you know, that men are superior and that men should be dominant over women. And then kind of they, they'll also point that say, you know what, the Bible teaches that women are kind of inferior. You know, they're of lower value, right? But then the misunderstanding of kind of the, the concepts of leadership and submission in marriage, actually, I would, I would posit or I would propose that it's even misunderstood among Christians um, or, or believers, you know, kind of even in a kind of a church setting, kind of even in SFBC. And I think there's, there's a few contributors or a few factors you know, for those misunderstandings and those mi misapplication 
of the biblical teaching of leadership and submission in marriage. You know, the first is, again, the influence of secular thinking, kind of the worldly views of leadership, submission, you know, the idea of the, the relationship between men and women in general, and then now it's kind of more recently, it's further complicated by, you know, gender-related issues, right? And so you get the world's view that says, okay, you know, an effect, an, excuse me, an effective leader is someone who takes charge, you know, makes decisions, you know, tells other people what to do. You know, I've also heard that, you know, a leader is someone who gets people to do what they otherwise wouldn't want to do. You know, it's kind of like, you know, trying to get a horse to, you know, drag them to some place. They'll say, oh, you know, that's what a leader is. That's the world's view of a leader. And so some of that thinking can creep into this idea of, you know, how are husbands and wives supposed to relate to each other? How is the husband supposed to be a leader, you know, in the marriage or in the family? So that's the first contributor. The second factor that kind of contributes to this misunderstanding is the Bible does not give us specific details, you know, about how a marriage should work or how a household should run. You know, for example, it doesn't tell us, oh, that husbands need to take out the trash or that the husbands have to take the car to get the oil changed and the women should be doing the cooking and that the women should be doing the laundry, right? The Bible doesn't tell us that, right? And, but, that's probably a good thing, right? Because otherwise the Bible will become this life manual, right? That says, oh yeah, you know, here's the list of the, what the husbands have to do and here's the list of what the wives have to do. And then the Bible becomes very, then, or believers will begin to follow the Bible in a very legalistic type of manner. Right? So that's kind of the second contributor to the kind of misunderstandings and the misapplication. And the third is what I'm gonna call intellectual and practical laziness. So intellectual and practical laziness. And that arises when people take what scripture says about the headship of the husband and the idea of the submission of the woman or of the wife. And what they do is they just say, oh yeah, headship, submission, and they just simply and kind of in a lazy kind of manner just apply it to their relationship or apply it to their marriage or, or, or apply it to what they think, you know, a marriage should run like or look like. You know, for example, you know, we'll actually get there, but we'll, Ephesians 5.24 says that the wife should submit to the husband in everything, right? And so they say, okay, you know, it says everything. So then when they like very lazily kind of apply that, they say, okay, the wife should have no say, no input, then it's only the husband's decision, it's only the husband's opinions that matter. But that's laziness. You know, that contributes to the misunderstanding, the misapplication, and the misinterpretation of scripture. So tonight, I wanted to go over, oops, sorry, gotta aim it that way. Five features, or five characteristics of biblical leadership and submission in marriage. And I'm going to draw primarily from Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 through 33. But we're going, to kind of, we're going to kind of skip around. We're going to look at some other uh, verses too as well. So there's, there's five features that we're going to draw. And then two of them are going to relate to the idea of submission. And then two are going to relate to uh, leadership. And then there's a fifth. 
that, that I'm going to kind of, there's a fifth kind of all-encompassing overarching feature, and I'm going to leave you hanging for that fifth one. Um, so we're going to draw from Ephesians 5, but what I thought I would do is really give a kind of a, uh, maybe a couple minute survey of the book of Ephesians, kind of to set the table, to set the context for these, this passage that we're going to look at. Now, one of the main theme of Ephesians is that all things are subject to Christ's lordship. And because of that, so everything, all of creation, you know, the church, and because of that Christ is Lord over everything, that there then is a oneness. There should be a unity of believers, unity within the church. Now, the book of Ephesians breaks down fairly nicely into two, two parts. Chapters 1 and 3 talk about the position of the believer, the, the, that the, the believer, the Christian, has blessings of reconciliation with Christ. Right? So the position, you know, position of the believer relative to Christ. Chapters 4 and 6 then talk about the practice of the Christian. What is the life of a believer supposed to look like? And Paul then talks about, he talks about the, a life that is spirit-filled, and then he talks about the relationships kind of within the church, but also kind of within kind of society too as well. Now chapter 5, if we kind of then begin to narrow it down, in chapter 5, Paul goes through a series of um, exhortations and imperatives that's directed to the believers. You know, for example, if you look at um, chapter 5, he starts with verses 1 and 2. And he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and then verse 2, and walk in love. And he actually continues, walk as love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And so he starts chapter 5 off with, you know, an exhortation. Verse 8, he says, walk as children of the light. Verse 15, be careful how you walk. And he continues that thought in verse 17. He says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Right? So you see these, you hear as we go through chapter 5, we see these exhortations, these imperatives that Paul is giving. And then he begins, as we get closer to our, our passage, our section today, he, he says, verse 18, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And then in verses 19 through 21, he gives several kind of uh, phrases. Or what, what does being filled with the Spirit look like? It says, well, verse 19, it says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And then another way of showing that you're filled with the Spirit is verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So that's the context of where we are. So let's look at our first feature. Our first feature is of... Oops, the formatting came out kind of funny. Okay, so submission is about having the proper attitude and not lack of action. Okay, so you're going to see these features. You get kind of a double bonus. You actually, I'm going to focus on the main part, but then you actually have a, a second feature, that, which is going to be the opposite. You're going to get a positive, and then you're going to get a negative. So, so, so submission is about having the proper attitude not lack of action. Okay. Now, the Greek word for submission that's used in Scripture, it has several meanings or several senses. 
For example, it means to be like, to be subject to, or to be subordinate, or to place, or to arrange something underneath something else. But here I'm going to propose that a good definition of submission is actually the disposition. Okay? It's the inherent quality of a person's mind and person's character. So it's the disposition. It's like an attitude. It's an inward kind of nature. And it's the spirit of voluntarily leading, sorry, voluntarily yielding to the authority of another out of love out of trust and obedience to God. That's, that's the definition I'm going to give for at least the biblical concept of submission. So once again, it's the disposition and spirit of voluntarily yielding to the authority of another out of love, trust, obedience to God. So the emphasis and the priority is more on the attitude, the mindset, the inward disposition. It's not based on actions, it's not based on behavior, nor is it based on the lack of action or the lack of initiative or the lack of authority to act. Now, the word submission is used in, this, in Scripture in a non-marital context. And in those verses... It, it indicates that actually everybody, every single person has a duty to submit to God. For example, Romans 8, 7, you know, Paul writes about how the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God and does not subject itself to God's law. And so that's that idea of subjection or submission. Similar in Romans 10, 3, Paul writes that people who sought their own righteousness they were not submitting themselves to God's righteousness. Okay? And then finally, James 4, 7, he writes, you know, submit yourselves to God. So everybody, every single person has an obligation to submit to God. And then we get to, you know, Ephesians 5, where there's this idea of submission in the marital context. Now, the command to submit is very similar, but there's a slightly different model, slightly different motive in when we get to Ephesians 5 because that we're now dealing with a marriage relationship. We're dealing with husband and wife rather than kind of man to God. So, so let's look at it that way. Sorry. Okay. So here, Ephesians, so the first point is that uh, submission is about having the proper attitude and not lack of action. And we're, I'm drawing that primarily from the first three verses. So uh, Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So we see in verse 22, right? verse 22 ends with this phrase, this fairly short phrase, as to the Lord. And that's important, right? Because it means that the wife's submission to the husband is as if she is serving the Lord. It's how God desired the marriage relationship to work. Right? It does not mean that the wife submits to the husband in the same way that she would submit to God. Right? 
Our submissive relationship to God, you know, should be one of unwavering obedience, kind of without any question, because of God's authority, God's kind of omnipotence and his power and his glory. But like I said, the relationship between husband and wife is slightly different between kind of man and God. So here, it's more, there's a slight difference, right? Wives are supposed to submit to their husbands as if, as if they're, you know, serving the Lord. We see similar verses um, and similar ideas here that kind of point more towards the attitude of submission rather than the action of submission. Colossians 3.18, Paul writes that wives are supposed to be subject to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Kind of similar idea as Ephesians 5, verse 22. It carries the ideas that it's what's proper or what's one's duty. You can also view this verse in Colossians as, as submitting according to the Christian way of life or as is proper to those who belong in the Lord or are in the Lord's service. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 has a similar idea. Okay. He's, he writes, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husband. I want to focus more on the in the same way. Okay. The ESV translates that as likewise. Now, there's, it could be, you know, Peter could be referring back to chapter 2, verse 13, where he writes that we're supposed to submit to human authority for the sake of the Lord. Or he could be referring back to chapter 2, verse 18, where he refers to the submission of servants. Or maybe actually the last part of chapter 2, where he gives the example of Christ's suffering as an example of of submission or subjection. And then Titus chapter 2, verse 5, there's the phrase, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Titus is encouraging the older women to teach the younger women to be subject to their husbands. And the reason is to honor God. So if we go back. Go back one second. Yeah. So so we see that verse verse 22, right? Paul is writing that wives are supposed to submit as if they are submitting to the Lord. So again, the attitude. And then we see then, he continues in verses 23 and 24, he he describes the model of that relationship between husbands and wives. And that model is the relationship between Christ and the church. And so he says in verse 23, For though husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So Christ is the savior of the church. Now, husbands are not going to necessarily save the wives, but it carries the idea that husbands should be the protector, the provider for the family and for the wife. Verse 24 carries that, the parallel comparison and then actually extends it even further. Right? So it says wives ought to be subject to the husbands in everything. You know, I mentioned it earlier. But in everything really refers to maybe an extent, rather than kind of a degree or depth. You know? And so, you know, wives are supposed to be subject to their husbands, but in the areas or in the issues that actually the husbands have, like, authority over or have kind of command over. 
And what the husband's authority or the husband's kind of, you know, reign, I, I don't want to say reign, but they're, they're, the headship, it's limited. You know, even though it says everything, but it's limited by God's authority, by kind of what's kind of taught in Scripture. So you can't, so a husband can't command a wife to sin, right? Or, or kind of go against what Scripture would say, right? Because we're still, we still have a higher authority, or husbands have a higher authority. So Scripture does not explicitly, you know, say how or what actions a wife does to submit to her husband. You know, you know someone could still act or kind of behave submissively, right? But actually have the wrong attitude, have the wrong heart, right? I think about my kids when I ask them to, you know, maybe you know, do the dishes, you know, you know, make their bed, pick up their clothes off the ground, right? They do it grudgingly, right? Sure, they'll still obey, they'll, they'll act, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do the, the task or the chore, right? That's the action. But the attitude is still one of maybe they do it grudgingly in a rebellious way, kind of a grumbling way. Right? Similar with submission, right? A wife could submit, right? As if, kind of outwardly, kind of in behavior or in action, but have the wrong heart, have the wrong attitude. So that's why I would say, I would posit that, you know, biblical submission in marriage is more about the proper attitude and rather than action or lack of action. So what does, you know, proper biblical what does a proper biblical submissive attitude look like? Well, there's probably two things. And again, these are just general principles. The first is that the wife shows respect to her husband and supports him as head of the household. Right? So if he is making a decision or he's maybe kind of like instructing the children, that she is there beside him or behind him, that she's supporting him, showing respect for what decision he has made, as long as that is according to, you know, scripture and glorifying God. And also a biblical submissive attitude, then a part of that is also that the wife still has freedom to express her own opinion without reluctance or without fear. So this allows wives to speak truth in love, to point out sin, to point out errors that the husband has made, or maybe some unacceptable behavior or some unacceptable opinion of the husband. So the wife is still submitting, but again, it's because out of the attitude and not action or lack of action. Now, submission does not mean, you have that not, so submission does not mean spiritual subjugation or spiritual authority. It does not mean that the wife puts the will of the husband above the will of Christ, or that the wife's like personal walk, her own sanctification, right, is based on her husband or relies on her husband. That's not submission. So again, it, you know, the biblical idea of submission of a wife is not spiritual subjugation or spiritual authority you know, of the husband. And also submission does not mean that the wife agrees with everything that the husband says kind of in a 
blind manner or just kind of totally obeying the husband. Submission does not mean speaking up or providing input or help. Spiritual submission allows the wife's opinions and views to have equal value as the husband's. And it's together that they seek the will of God in their lives. And also, spirit, oh, sorry, submission does not mean that, remember I said I had, do not, does not mean lack of action. So submission does not mean passivity, inactivity, or lack of action or lack of initiative on the wife's part. And we see like in Proverbs 31, you know, Titus 2, we see examples of the work and the initiatives that godly women do, you know, described in Scripture. Now, I'm going to take a slight kind of tangent and a slight detour, kind of building off of this idea of lack of action and lack of initiative. Now, some people have taken passages like Ephesians chapter 5, um, where it talks about women are, or sorry, wives are supposed to submit to husbands. And they've taken that and have actually, I would propose, I would off, say, kind of for the record, that they've wrongly applied it to single individuals, people who are unengaged. Um, and they say, they, they say, well, women are supposed to submit to men. And so women, therefore, should not ask, God, or God, you know, girls should not ask guys out, or women should not ask men out. And I would, again, say that that is incorrect um, for two reasons. One is that the verses that talk about submission in Bible relate to husbands and wives in a marriage context. And they do not relate to single, unengaged men or women. And also the second reason is then that it goes back to the idea of a lack of action or lack of initiative. So if we say that, okay, these verses that talk about submission... Right, of women or submission of wives, if we say that they cannot, women cannot take their own initiative or make, you know, act on their own kind of thoughts, desires, you know, ideas, right? Then, well, what about the times that my wife is going to the grocery store and she decides, oh, you know, tonight we're going to have, you know, lasagna for dinner, right? That's a decision that she made on her own. That's an action that she did. That's an initiative. Does she have to like run that by me? Do I have to approve every single decision as kind of head of the household, as leader of you know leader of her, or kind of the quote unquote headship? No, it it, it, it does. That's not what spirit, what biblical leadership in marriage means. So submission in marriage. Let's wrap up this point. Submission in in the marriage relationship is about the proper God honoring attitude. You know, it's not about actions. It's not about passivity. It's not about lack of authority to act or take initiative. And then most importantly, it's not about kind of spiritual subjugation, you know, of the wife and that the wife has to draw her spiritual walk, her sanctification from her husband rather than from Christ directly. The second feature of submission Alex, next slide, baby. Thank you. Okay. The second um, feature of uh, submission is, be, is about being a complementary helper. 
and not under hierarchy. And for this, we're going to actually jump back to uh, Genesis chapter 2. So complementarianism, it's a long word, uh, complementarianism is an, is, um, an important, but I would say an overlooked aspect of the concept of leadership and submission in marriage. The idea of complementary means like equal but distinct. So as it relates to the, the a relationship between a husband and wife being complementary, it means that they're equal, but there's some, there, there's some distinction, there's some difference. And complementarianism also does not mean codependency, you know, being a substitute, you know, being like a, a fill-in, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm missing stuff, so I, I need it. You know, from I'm getting kind of my needs or my missing parts met by my spouse. So when we go back to Genesis chapter 2, we see the story of the creation of, or kind of the run-up to the creation of of Eve. So I put here um, uh, verses 18 through 20, but the the focus is really going to be on uh, verses 18 and 20. So chapter 2, verse 18 um, reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then um, verse 19, I'll just read it for just for completeness. It says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the, the word helper, we see tw- used twice. And there's really kind of two meanings or two usages of that word. The first is that the helper is actually a companion. That God recognized Adam's aloneness. Not loneliness, aloneness. That Adam was alone. Right? Adam was perfect at this point. Right? He was created by God. This was before the, the fall of man. So Adam was alone, not lonely, right? Loneliness is kind of more of a kind of a negative, kind of sad, oh, woe is me kind of, but Adam was alone, right? And so God says, I will make him a helper, And then we see the Hebrew usage is actually literally kind of what is in front of him. It's almost like a mirror image, right? So this idea of helper here is a companion, someone that indicates an equal like an equality or equalness to Adam. And then in verse 23, Adam exclaims, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's it's actually an exclamation of praise that Adam says, now, at this time, at last, I have somebody just like me. There's a sameness in being and sameness in nature, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, it's equal to me. It's like a mirror image of me. So this idea of congenial, that it's equal. And then some have even suggested that what Adam is exclaiming in verse 23, it's almost, he's almost declaring this covenantal commitment of loyalty between Adam and Eve. 
in that kind of in that marriage bond, right? That's like part of my body cannot be removed because it is my body or part of my body. So the idea of helper as a companion. The second is that this helper now is an assistant, kind of like what we think of when we hear the term helper. The word helper is used actually throughout the new, uh, excuse me, throughout the Old Testament to actually describe God as Israel's helper. So it does not indicate a subordinate position. You know, we think of helper now as, you know, kind of like the help, you know, somebody who might be kind of lower standing, you know, like a TA who's not really a teacher, but kind of like on the side, right? But that's not what the Old Testament uses the word helper as, right? God is Israel's helper. So it's referring to anyone who provides assistance, who contributes to the fulfillment of a need or the furtherance, you know, of an effort, So Eve is a complement to Adam. She's an indispensable part that's required to fulfill or to achieve the divine commission for Adam and the divine commission, the divine purpose of marriage. So that's the idea of helper, a companion and an assistant. Now the concept of biblical submission in marriage does not, again, I said does not, I mentioned the idea of higher, um, hierarchy. So it does not suggest inferiority or inequality, you know, in the personhood, the value, the worth of women. You know, there's no question, there's no doubt that men and women are equal in God's eyes. We see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that both men and women are created in God's image. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes that there's neither male nor female because all are one in Christ Jesus. So submission is not about lower standing, not about inequality. It refers more to the role or to the function of the wife relative to the husband in kind of the family household and in a marriage as God intended. That the husband and wife are to have equal and interdependent ministry to each other. And they're supposed to have mutual respect and honor for each other. One, one author writes, a godly wife is not only a companion and a partner to her husband, she provides highly valuable and essential exhortation and encouragement and a check and balance for his spiritual safety, health, and growth. I thought that was a really nice summary of what a godly woman, a godly wife is to be in kind of this framework of submission in a biblical sense. Now, Let's kind of change gears, and we're going to talk about leadership. Now, in kind of the Greco-Roman kind of culture of the New Testament times, oh yeah, thanks, Alex, I haven't pressed it yet. <laughs> but in, um, in the culture of the New Testament times, wives had a very big obligation to the husbands, right? kind of in a serving type of way, kind of in an inferior type way. 
but it was actually, but the vice versa was not true. That the husbands actually had no obligation to, to like take care of the wife. So when we come to the New Testament times and when we come to what Paul is writing in Ephesians, I mean, that was almost kind of revolutionary. It's kind of counterculture. You know, what Christianity, you know, what kind of the early believers were talking, you know, you know, or what Christ talked about or taught about, you know, the relationship between husbands and wives. And so Paul in, in, chap in Ephesians chapter 5, he actually spends more attention. He actually spends more verses addressing the husbands. It's because husbands actually have a greater responsibility to the wife than the wife does to the husband. Now, the topic here, you know, or the title for today's talk was, you know, leadership and submission. Now, submission is kind of the word that is used to kind of summarize or to kind of sum up the wife's role in marriage. And very often you hear leadership kind of combined with it you know, just to kind of serve as a counterbalance. Uh, but in fact, actually, a better summary word for the husband's role is actually love. It's love, not lead or leadership. It's actually love. And so that brings us to kind of our third feature. Okay. <laughs> so the, 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 the key feature of leadership is actually loving sacrificially and not being served. Loving sacrificially. Yeah, okay. Let's look at verses uh, 25 through 27. So uh, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So verse 25, husbands are commanded. It's this imperative. Love your wives in a sacrificial manner. And this is the agape love, See, which you know, indicates seeking the highest good for another person. Right? And the model for that sacrificial love is Christ, that Christ suffered. He died for the church. And we almost always uh, talk about how Christ died for our sins, you know, as individual believers, right? That's not wrong. But we also have to remember that actually Christ suffered and died for the church, the universal body of believers throughout time. Now, we might think of sacrifice, you know, as being this big dramatic moment. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to push my wife out, you know, out of the way of a, like a speeding train, or you know, she's crossing the street and there's a car, I'm gonna push her out of the way, or I'm gonna run into a burning build building and then kind of pull her out, right? We think of kind of sacrifice as, as being like that. Right? But sacrificial love, especially in a household or in a marriage, is found in small things. It's found in kind of moment to moment, day to day. It's found like just spending time with her, getting to know her, providing for her needs, or maybe submitting to what she wants. And the sacrificial part, the small sacrifices, you know, for the husbands, it's putting to death any sin, any temptation that would prevent husbands, prevent us as men, or interfere 
with our love for her and for our ability to serve her. The worldly perspective of love is really, they, they view love as like an emotion, like a feeling, right? And that is very often kind of self-centered or kind of egocentric, right? That the worldly love kind of brings kind of good, warm, fuzzy feelings. You know, it kind of gives pleasure for, you know, who's doing the loving, right? The example I thought of is like somebody would say, I love pizza, right? It's like, well, that's because pizza tastes good. You know, it satisfies my hunger, right? It's like, or I like, you know, the bumper stickers, I love New York, right? Well, you love New York because, you know, you like to go there and you like, you know, seeing all the sights, right? But you're not contributing anything to New York, right? I'm not contributing anything to the pizza that I ate. So, right? That's the worldly view of love. But here, sacrificial love in the marriage context is about action. It, it points to the purpose. It points to the goal of the love of the husband. And we see that in verses 26 and 27. That Paul continues to talk about, you know, what did Christ do? And what is Christ doing for the church? Because then that gives us the model for the sacrificial love of a husband. So the purpose of Christ's love was to sanctify the church, to present the church to himself in all her glory. And how did he do that? What's the action? Well, he cleansed the church through the washing of water with the word. Now, this does not refer to baptismal regeneration. It's not a literal water, right? But it's more of a, a metaphorical regeneration, that the church, the believers, were cleansed by the water and cleansed by the word, the word of God that's found in the gospel, the gospel message, and found in scripture. You know, that's how Christ, that's the action, that Christ cleansed the church. And again, the purpose was to sanctify the church, to present the church to himself in all her glory. And what's the result of all that? So we have the purpose, action, and result. And the result, we see that at, in verse uh, 27. And then we see it right kind of at the end. It says, to make the church holy and blameless. Right? So that's the model of a husband's sacrificial love to his wife. Right? That the husband is to encourage her you know, in her growth. Try to present her to Christ you know, as holy and blameless. Of course, as husbands, you know, we're sinners, we're sinful. You know, we, we won't be able to accomplish that in perfection. In perfection, not imperfect. In, you know, in completeness, right? Because again, wives are supposed to draw their strength and draw their sanctification from Christ, not necessarily from the husband. We see a similar idea to this in First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Peter encourages husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. It's the idea that husbands are to be considerate of their wives' spiritual, emotional, physical needs. Right? We see that similarly. He writes, he describes how, he says, he says you know, your, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. 
since she is a woman. Now, this is a generalization that kind of refers to that generally, again, very generally, you know, women are weaker, physically weaker than men. You know, of course, there are exceptions. I'm sure there's many women that are actually physically stronger than I am. Um, but this is, again, referring to their physical weakness, and this is a generalization. Now, the reason why husbands are supposed to live with their wives in a considerate way or in an understanding way, kind of being attuned to their needs. And the reason for that, Peter gives, is because the, their wives or our wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life. They are also one in the same in Christ, that they are also will receive the blessings of salvation. So to begin to wrap up this point. So the purpose of sacrificial love of a husband for his wife is to help the wife grow in holiness and spiritual maturity. It's the responsibility of the husband to encourage her, to guide her in her application of Scripture to her life. Now, I'll just quickly say the not part. I had, you know, leadership does not mean being served. And, you know, since Jesus Christ is the husband's example of, you know, love, you know, and kind of leadership, I put the air quotes of leadership, we can see what Jesus said about his life, you know, when he was here on earth. And we look at very, I don't have a slide, but like, for example, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, and then Mark 10, 45. The Mark, the Mark verse is probably the most... Kind of, kind of the key verse or like a good summary verse for the book of Mark, actually. So that's Mark 10, 45. You know, Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Let's go then move on to our fourth point. Uh-oh. Hmm. <laughs> There's some formatting issues there. Okay, so what that says um, is living by example, not by edict. Okay, so leadership in the marriage context is living by example, not by edict. And so we we see that in verses twenty eight and twenty nine. And so verses twenty eight and twenty nine are kind of the application of verses twenty five through twenty seven. And then actually, Paul then carries the analogy a little bit further. So. Let me just read verses 28 and 29. It says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So Christ loves the church, not simply as if it was part of his body, but in fact... It was because that, that the church is his body. And that's why Christ loves the church. And so, and so just as Christ loves the church because it is his body, then husbands are exhorted to love their wives as themselves and as their own bodies. Now, verse 29, Paul contrasts the fact that no one, and that no one has a universal scope, it's not just for believers. It's believers, unbelievers. It's everyone in the world. That no one hates their own body, 
Uh, there might be, you know, some, you know, people, you know, fallen into maybe sin or kind of self-hate that, I mean, unfortunately, that actually probably do hate, hate their body. But in, in general, you know, no one hates their own body. But rather, they nourish it and they cherish it. Now, the idea of nourish is the idea of sustaining, you know, strengthening, you know, renewing with food, like nourishment, eating. And then Paul then also uses the term cherish. So it's the idea of kind of warming something up, you know, treating it with tenderness and affection. And so the idea of cherish then carries the idea of like protection and preservation. So we see the two ideas of nourishing and cherishing, sustaining and strengthening, and then protection and provision, and pres- or protection and preservation. So the husband or everyone, you know, loves their body. They're going to nourish it. They're going to protect. They're going to try to preserve their own body. And so husbands, because we do that, we're supposed to do that to our wives. So to lead, or sorry, to love and to lead, lead your wife spiritually, emotionally, you know, and, and physically, a husband, needs, a husband needs to do the same in his own life. A husband needs to be walking with the Lord, you know, in prayer, spending time in scripture, prioritizing devotion, prioritizing their faith and trust in God, you know, seeking God's wisdom and guidance in his life, right? A husband has to be doing that. They have to be nourishing and cherishing their own spiritual life in order to spiritually lead and to emotionally and physically protect their wife. That's leading by example, right? But we, as husbands, are not supposed to live or lead by edict. Husbands are not to rule or to lead the family with commands or orders. You know, do as I say. You know, listen to me. I'm the sergeant, Except in times of emergency or, you know, except in times of danger, right? There's a fire in the house. I'm yelling, get out of the house, you know, now, that's an order. Right? Listen to that order, right? I mean, that's the time. So that's kind of maybe the caveat or the, the exception. You know, times of emergency, danger, or times of sin, right? If a family member has fallen into sin, that's when the husband, you know, as head of the house, can say, put an end to this. This has to stop. Right? Sometimes these attitude or the approach as the do as I say, or do as I order. It kind of, sometimes it draws from the husband's own personal preferences, his own desires. And it treats the wife's opinion, the wife's inputs, kind of less valuable, less worthy. If we go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, right? Jesus said he came to serve and not to be served. Now, a few verses before that, in verse 42, Jesus is contrasting himself, you know, his life with the Gentile Gentile authorities who ruled, who lorded over their subjects with authority. They they kind of dominated. They exercised control as master. And Jesus said, no, I did not come to, to be served in that way. I came to serve. 
So let's kind of wrap this up. So what does kind of a husband's leadership, I'm going to put that in air quotes again, what does a husband's leadership look like? You know, what might be the sacrificial love or living by example look like? Sometimes I think we have the wrong idea. We have the wrong metrics. We think that like a man or, like, or kind of like maybe a single man to be eligible is like, oh yeah, that guy, you know, that person should be maybe leading Bible study. No. That's not wrong, but I think that's the wrong model. Right? That's the wrong metric. That's the wrong standard. Not everyone is gifted to kind of lead a Bible study. Right? Rather, in kind of in a marriage context, you know, what a husband's sacrificial love you know, and living by example should look like? There's three. Uh, the first is pursue her. You know, just kind of continue to, you know, go after her. Right? One author writes that the wedding is not the finish line, it's the starting line. Husbands are to learn more about their wife, to grow, and they're supposed to grow in faith together. Being truly and completely sacrificing for her can also mean excluding any thoughts or any fantasies or those, those doubts or the what if I married somebody else or kind of maybe you know, fantasies or temptations of you know, physical desire you know, for another woman that's not our wife. And also can also mean sacrificing any personal wants, any personal desires, habits, preferences, you know, that the husband has. And that those things do not build or do not strengthen the marriage relationship, or they may detract away, they may take away from time with the wife. So pursuing the wife. And also, like I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, sacrificial love is, can also mean serving the wife in small ways on a daily basis. Right? I'm not going to be saving my wife from a burning building every day or probably, maybe, hopefully, you know, ever. Right? Sacrificial love is about action. You know, it's, and it's not about feelings or emotions. There may be times, and I, I would say there will be times, when the romantic feelings of love are kind of dwindling or a little bit less you know, in marriage. But there's always opportunities to serve the wife. You know, small things, folding the laundry, you know, helping clean the table. Maybe saying, hey, you know, take it, you know, you know, rest today. Let me take care of the kids. So small things, small actions can make a big difference and it is a good way of showing sacrifice and living by example. Finally, it's also that husbands should give their wife a voice. They should allow her to speak freely about his own life. You know, the wife should speak truth in love you know, about the husband and to the husband. And that the husband must listen and respond carefully and graciously, after very prayerful deliberation. You know, it's easy as men to get very defensive. And some, that's sometimes out of pride. Say, no, you know, no, that's not, that, no. You see it wrong. Right? And that's 
how a husband is supposed to lovingly sacrifice and live by example. Now, very often, and I've actually, earlier, actually, last year, when we were going through the relationship series, some questions very often come up, actually here and also kind of elsewhere. The question almost always comes up about how wives can speak up about their husband's sin you know, or something that the husband's doing that's not right. And I think those questions very likely come up because there's a tendency to overemphasize the authority of the husband relative to the wife's submissive attitude. And then what we also then do is we underemphasize the freedom of the wife to speak up, you know, to act in a manner that still demonstrates submission and still demonstrates love first and foremost, to God. So that's, those, here it is. Okay, so let's go back. Here we go. Okay, so far we've talked about the role and the responsibility of wives, you know, to submit, you know, to their husbands as if they're submitting to God and to, as if they're honoring God or to honor God, I should say. And that the wife is supposed to be a complementary helper to the husband. That's the two points of submission. And then there's the two points of leadership. We've talked about how husbands are supposed to sacrificially love their wives, just like Christ loved and gave himself up for the church. And that husbands are supposed to kind of lead and live by example in their own spiritual walk. But submission and leadership right, suggests that there's actually kind of two people approaching marriage or the marriage relationship from kind of different positions or with the kind of different things to contribute. And then we also then begin to fall into this mindset or this thinking, you know, when people ask about, well, how do we compromise, you know, when we're in a relationship? You know, how do I compromise to my wife or how does my wife compromise to me? You know, so we kind of get this kind of, kind of knocking heads, you know, two Two people trying to you know, make a single marriage work. But Paul, by way of scripture, you know, in Ephesians, he emphasizes a final feature. Uh, one that's actually greater than submission and leadership. So, and, it, and it really then, Paul, in the last few verses of this passage, then Paul brings home the main points. He really demonstrates what the biblical model of marriage and the way God intends marriage or the marriage relationship to be. And so that fifth feature is, it's one in spirit and submission. One in spirit and submission. And that's uh, verses uh, uh, 30 through 33. And then there's a cross-reference, cross, yeah, cross chapter 4, verse 21. Let me see, I have those slides. Here we go. So let's pick it up. Verse 30 says, because we are members of his body, that's actually a kind of a phrase, I, I wasn't sure where to cut it off. That's, actually, that's carrying over from verses 29. It says, verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is grace, uh, great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Right. So verse 30, you know, that's kind of a 
little phrase that's carrying over from the previous verses. But there, Paul says, we are members of his body. Paul changes the subject now. He says there was this, he was talking about husbands and wives, right? And he was, then he changes the subject to all believers collectively and also individually, kind of as represented by the church, right? So verse 30 is a supporting statement. He says the reason why husbands are supposed to love their wives as their own bodies is because all believers are members of and a part of Christ's body. So what husbands and wives have in common is that they're both members of the body of Christ. And so there's this oneness. And then Paul then quotes a very familiar verse, drawing from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's been described as maybe the, as the most fundamental Old Testament verse about God's plan for marriage. So that verse 31, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So in one sense, one flesh can refer to the physical union of a husband and a wife through sexual intercourse. But it can also refer to the spiritual union of a husband and wife with each other and as a single unit in Christ or with Christ. So marriage takes a man and a woman and binds them together in solidarity with each other and to each other. And that these two individuals become one figurative flesh. They share the same goals. They should be having the same views. They should be sharing respect and love for each other. And the reason for that is because they are one in spirit with Christ as part of his body. Now, verses 32 and 33, it's actually a double conclusion. Um, So verse 32, Paul writes, this mystery is great. Now, there's different interpretations about what Paul is referring to when he writes the mystery. Some have said that it's only referring to the earthly marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Some have said that it's actually more the, the kind of a theological, it's more kind of the union between Christ and the church. And both have reasonable support. But it's probably better to view verse 32 in relation to um, the use or the quotation of Genesis you know, chapter 2, verse 24, in verse 31. And so what Paul is referring to when he says this mystery is great is he's saying that the relationship between Christ and the church is a typology. It's a type. It's kind of the mirror image, or it's the model of marriage. And so the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, kind of the earthly relationship, is meant to reflect that perfect relationship between Christ and the church. So that's verse 32. And then, verse, and then verse 33 is then he kind of brings up, he brings up this idea of submission, you know, again, as, as kind of a practical summary. 
So he starts with an exhortation, again, you know, for the husbands, right? The emphasis, again, for this passage is, again, on the husbands or for the husbands. It says, nevertheless, it says, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. There's that exhortation, right? And then he says, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, the Greek word for respect there is actually literally means to fear. And that's actually where we get the word phobia, right? So phobia, can you, in our kind of usage, we think of like fear. I'm deathly afraid of something. But here in this context, it's more to, to revere, right? To honor. Right? So verse 33 Verse 33 serves as one bookend. It serves as the end to this passage about the relationship between husbands and wives. But if we rewind, if we go back to verse 22, verse 22, it actually, the verse itself actually has no verb in that sentence. You know, in the NASB, they actually italicize it, and I italicized it on the slide, because that's to indicate that they actually added those words in the English for it to make sense. So verse 22, it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, the ESV adds the word submit. But the fact that verse 22 actually has no verb, it actually draws the verb from verse 21. And so we look back at verse 21. Verse 21, Paul says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So that's why I kind of gave that little bit of a survey or summary of Ephesians. Verse 21 tells us that spirit-filled believers are supposed or are to submit to one another. And that, that, that's the introduction to three relationships where a Christ-honoring submission is seen. The first is husbands and wives. The second is children and parents. And then the third is slaves and masters. So what Paul is pointing to, or what this section of, of chapter 5, or chapter 5 of Ephesians, what Paul is pointing to is that there's actually a higher level. There's actually a more important relationship than husband and wife. And that's a believer in Christ who's filled with the Spirit. So then we should submit to one another, one another. And the reason for that is fear. That's the phobos, the fear, kind of profound respect, profound honor for Christ. So that the husband and wife, even though there's the headship and leadership and submission, right, both are actually supposed to be submitting to Christ. And they're supposed to be one in spirit. I'm going to wrap up kind of give a summary, but we're going to go back to uh, verses 31 and 33. This is kind of the summary. One kind of blog writer, he writes that marriage is an imperfect picture of a perfect reality. Marriage is an imperfect picture of a perfect reality. And I think people who judge their marriage rightly or correctly, will admit, readily admit, that their marriage is not perfect. Probably no marriage is perfect because we're humans, we're sinful people, right? But 
we go back to the typology. We go back to the type. We go back to that relationship, that perfect reality, that perfect relationship that Christ loved and Christ died willingly, voluntarily, and sacrificially for believers and for the church. So in response to Christ's love, believers and the church are are to submit themselves entirely to Christ. And so when we consider that the idea of leadership and submission, you know, of the husband and the wife, and when we think about our earthly kind of institution of marriage, you know, unfortunately we we approach it, you know, from our finite wisdom, you know, our sinful ways of thinking and our kind of sinful lives. But this does not mean that married couples cannot work towards that perfect relationship, that perfect model that we have in Christ and the church. And that we don't, and it does not mean that we do not have that model or that framework for a biblical and a God-glorifying marriage. One commentary writes that a Christian, commentary on Ephesians, um, the commentator writes, a Christian marriage reveals the mystery of Christ loving his responsive church. Such a marriage bears living witness to the meaning of two becoming one. It reproduces in miniature the beauty shared between the bridegroom and the bride. And through it all, the mystery of the gospel is unveiled. You see, Christ loved the church. The church responds in obedience, in submission to Christ. And so, in our earthly institution of marriage, we have two people becoming one in spirit and one in submission to each other but also in submission to Christ. And that then the two, that, that marriage relationship in the biblical model then can reveal or can show and manifest Christ's love you know, for the world and the gospel message. Let's close in prayer. Dear great God of heaven, we just thank you for your gift of your son Jesus Christ that out of his love, out of his obedience for you and kind of in, as demonstration of your grace you know, for the world that he died willingly and sacrificially for us as believers and also for the church. We just thank you and we praise you for that model that we have as we consider kind of how husbands and wives are supposed to relate to each other but also relate to you in your son, Jesus Christ, in there in in the marriage that we have here in the world. We ask that you continue to be with us, guide us, encourage us in these times, and that you may use what you say in in your word that we considered today to help uh, my audience, the people who have heard and listened, to grow in their faith in you. And Hopefully that you will lead them to a God-glorifying, spirit-filled marriage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So application questions. Right at first. Oh, did you want to come up? Oh. Application questions. So I, I split them up. Um, so there's two questions each uh, for women, and then there's a set for men. Now the two questions, the first question is more of a um, kind of a positive. You know, I meant to encourage you kind of think about kind of areas that you can grow. And then the second question is kind of maybe more on the negative. So maybe to prompt you for a very kind of honest self-examination you know, for things that might be a stumbling block, things that might be holding you back. Um, or that might that may interfere, or that may affect your ultimate uh, affect maybe a, a future marriage relationship. Um, so I'll read them. It says, "For the women, how do you foster the proper attitude of submission before marriage?" And acknowledging that most of you here are are single and unmarried. So, but how if we kind of think about you know the church's submission to Christ, you know, and kind of the proper attitude. Again, not action or lack of action, more the attitude. How can you foster that? How can you develop that now? And then kind of the second question for women. Kind of what hinders, what hinders your pre-marriage development of a submissive attitude? Um, and the, maybe the ability or kind of your willingness to be a complementary helper to potentially a future husband. Okay. So that's for the women. Uh, for the men. You know, how do you work towards the biblical role and responsibilities of a husband before marriage? Okay, and the emphasis, again, that's why I throw in the before marriage, because I want you to think as single individuals, you know, to prepare yourself now. So, and then kind of the second question, what interferes with your pre-marriage growth in living by example as is expected in marriage? Hopefully that's clear. It took me a while to kind of try to phrase it so it's kind of clear. So now that you're in your current state, you're, you're single, unmarried, unengaged, you know, we want people to kind of be preparing themselves, preparing yourselves, men, you know, in kind of growth. You know, how do you live by example? What does that look like if, you know, your ultimate goal is to be doing that, you know, in a marriage relationship? So how do you kind of do that? How do you start doing that? How do you grow in that now? 